the more you read God's word, the more you grow in your relationship with God, the more you'll discover that faith is everything. Faith is everything in the Christian life. It's everything. Faith is where the rubber meets the road, and we all find out if we just have head knowledge about God or a real trust relationship with God. Faith is everything. And the theme of faith is just going to continue into this week's study. And what Jesus is going to teach us in his word is going to be absolutely incredible this morning. It has the potential to limit our lives or the potential to make our lives limitless. It's that powerful. If you haven't figured it out yet, there's not many things that fire me up like teaching from God's word on the subject of faith. And it's because I'm always preaching to myself along with the rest of us. And speaking of faith, would you just agree with me in your own spirit this morning as we get into the word of God that God has something good for you in his word this morning? I just want to encourage you, don't have that thought in your mind, maybe this will be good, maybe it won't. Just believe in faith that as we open the word of God, it's going to speak to you. Can you say amen to that this morning? Amen. That was 50% amen. Jesus doesn't do 50% amens. Can you say amen? Amen. There we go. I used to be a youth pastor, so I just can't put up with quietness too much. So let's jump into Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Picking up where we left off last time, about four weeks ago, it says, When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David was a messianic title, and so when they call Jesus that, it's proving and showing us that they believe Jesus to be the Messiah. They believed he was the promised Savior of the world. And this is ironic because they're two blind men, but they have better vision than most because despite their lack of eyesight, they were able to see Jesus clearly for who he was when most people were missing him. Verse 28, and when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, and I want you to underline, do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And so write this on your outline. This is the first question everyone must answer when asking the Lord for a miracle. This is the first question everyone must answer when asking the Lord for a miracle. Do you believe Jesus can do it? That's the first question. And these men were able to answer in honesty, yes, Lord. I want to suggest to you that we must not only believe that the Lord can do what we're asking, we must believe that the Lord desires good for us. Many times we believe the issue is not God's power, but we doubt his character. We doubt whether he really wants to do good things for us or if he's given us one of these lives where, hey, you know, my plan for your life is just for you to be miserable and uh, just glorify me through that. Hallelujah. And we doubt the character of God as in does he really want good for us or is he some sort of weird sadistic father who thinks that good is being miserable and suffering all the time. This is a verse we should commit to memory. Hebrews eleven six says it like this. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He is God. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I love that verse. I'd put that on your bathroom mirror everywhere. He who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. These blind men believe that. Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, and then underline this, according to your faith, let it be done to you. According to your faith, let it be done to you. So write this on your outline. Jesus said that the miracle the blind men received was in direct proportion to their faith. It was in direct proportion to their faith. And this is an uncomfortable verse for Christians sometimes because it's really easy to get super weird with faith. You just turn on the TV, go on to TBN or whatever Christian TV network you get, and there are dudes going really weird with this line of thinking. But I want to point out to you, right here in black and white in the Bible, is Jesus Christ telling these men there is a direct connection between the size of your faith and the size of your ask. There's a direct connection between the two. And Jesus is saying, here's the good news. Your faith is great. What you're asking of me is great. We've got a match. And a miracle takes place because there was a relationship between the two things. 
It's right here in God's word. Verse 30, it says, and their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. I love verse 31. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And you see this again and again in the Gospels. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this, and they, they just can't help blabbing about it. I mean, I would, you know, if I just had my vision restored from nothing, seeing the world for the first time. You look different. No, no, everything's the same. I only have the miracle of sight now. So I, I, I kind of get it. It would also be a little bit hard to hide, I think, as they didn't have sunglasses at that time. So I can't blame them for telling everybody this. So why does Jesus tell them not to tell anyone about this? Why doesn't Jesus say, hey, come on, just tweet it out. Put it out there. A couple of potential reasons. The first is I believe Jesus wanted to be known more for his message than his miracles. He didn't want to become a freak show, a sideshow. He wanted to be known first and foremost as a teacher before being a miracle worker. And you always find when he goes to places, he prioritizes teaching even above doing miracles. And so he didn't just want to become known as a faith healer. He wanted to be known as more than that. Secondly, Jesus might have been trying to save these guys from a lot of trouble because opposition was really beginning to mount during this time against Jesus and his followers. So Jesus might have been saying, I'm glad to do this for you, but listen, save yourself a lot of trouble and just don't tell people that I did this for you because they're going to hassle you. They're going to harass you. They're going to call you a liar. They're going to make your life difficult. Two possible reasons Jesus might have said that. Verse 32, it says, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, Cast out demons by the ruler of demons. As we saw earlier in the ministry of Jesus, you might remember this. There were religious men at the time who would perform exorcisms. They already existed. But they had a process, they had a procedure, much like Catholic priests would today. And the first step in their procedure was to have the demon identify themselves. And the demon would have to say his name, and then they would use it in their ritual of exorcism. So if you were mute because of a demonic possession taking place in your life, you couldn't be helped because they couldn't even go through step one in the process. Nobody had ever seen somebody deliver a person from demonic possession when the person couldn't even speak. They had never seen it, and that's why they say, we've never seen anything like this in Israel. They are amazed. It implies a power greater than they had ever witnessed before. And sadly, just as they had done earlier in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees simply dismissed what Jesus was doing as being the work of Satan. Oh, it's Satan casting out Satan even though Jesus said, that doesn't even make sense. But apparently they've just dug their feet in and this is their standard explanation every time Jesus does a miracle. Oh, it's just he's doing it by the power of Satan. Because we all know Satan loves to go around healing people and making them whole and bringing healing to their lives. Now we're going to flip over to Mark chapter 6. Matthew, Mark chapter 6. As we go through this series, we're doing it all in chronological order, so sometimes we have to jump around the four gospels a little bit. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, the very next gospel in your Bibles, and we'll start in verse 1. It says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. His own country just means his hometown. In this case, it's Nazareth. And the fact that Jesus brought his disciples with him tells us that was, this wasn't just a trip home to see family. This was a ministry trip. And if you have a hometown, you you'd always desire to see God move there. Even if you move somewhere else, there's always something in your heart that says, I would love to see God move where I came from. Jesus has that same desire, and he wants to come and do miracles and powerful ministry in his own hometown. Now, this wasn't the first trip Jesus had taken back to his hometown. Let's go to our flashback. So things get foggy, and now we see the scene emerging right here. His first trip, it's in Luke 4. You don't need to flip there. I'll just give you sort of the Cliff Notes version. In, in case you missed the message where we studied this earlier, let me read you a few verses. This is Jesus' first visit back to Nazareth. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. One thing led to another, 12 verses later. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. 
Last visit didn't go so well. I think we'd all agree. So we'll see what happens during the second visit. Verse 2, it says, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. You might want to underline teach because the first time he came, he just read from the scrolls. He read from Isaiah and claimed to be the fulfillment of that prophecy. But this time he is teaching in their presence. It says, And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which was given to him? that such mighty works are performed by his hands. And this is where we need to push the pause button on everything because it's clear here that everyone is astonished by the way Jesus is teaching. They can just tell God is here. He is doing something. They're astonished by the power he has when he teaches. And there's some miracles he's done that are blowing their minds as well. Everybody sees them. Everybody is amazed. So now the question becomes, how are you going to process these things? How are you going to process a revelation of Jesus, seeing Jesus. How are you going to make sense of this in your own mind? In verse 3, this is what they do. They say, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? You know, the Bible tells us that every single person who has ever lived on the earth has seen enough of God to be accountable In other words, to know that he exists. In in Romans, Paul says that you can just look around you in creation and something in you says there's more to this than just pure chance. This is God. This is divine. This is something bigger than us. Paul says God has put the ability in every person to just look around them and recognize that a God exists. Additionally, we are imago Dei, which simply means we're made in the image of God. We have his imprint on us. Even in our conscience, it shows up. And the Bible says, listen, every single person, even if they've never heard the gospel, can look around them, look up to the heavens at night, and recognize the glory of God. Every person has a conscience in them, that imprint of the character of God, telling them right from wrong. And every person is going to be judged according to the revelation they've received. If that's all they got, they grew up in the jungle, they see the night sky, they have the imprint of God, their conscience, God will judge them according to that, according to the revelation that they've received. But everybody has a response to the revelation that they've received. And as I mentioned just last week, it was so cool that scientists have just discovered right now that the water on the earth is older than the sun. The water on the earth is older than the sun, meaning that the earth existed before the sun. The water on the earth existed before the sun. That's what they've just discovered. That's a revelation of Jesus, even in the realm of science. And the question becomes, how are you going to respond to that revelation? As I shared last week, the scientific community's response was not, wow, Christians and Jews have believed this for thousands of years. In fact, they've had it written down for thousands of years that this was so, that the water on the earth existed before the sun. That's not the response. The response is, this gives us great hope that there may be alien life on other planets. (laughs) Everybody has a response to the revelation of God based on whether or not they want to recognize God. And so when you begin to think about why is that? Why would you just dismiss it? Why would you do that? I really believe it's because when you acknowledge the existence of God, there are consequences to that realization. Because you can't just say, well, it's clear there's a God. Let me just go back to my life. If you're willing to concede that there is a God, the only rational chain of thought is to then ask, well, who is he? And who am I? Who am I to him? What do I need to do to be at peace with him, to be right with my maker? These are all the questions that must follow the acknowledgement that God exists. And they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with the thought that Jesus may be the Messiah because if Jesus is the Messiah, then what does that mean? Well, I must be led by him. I must follow him. He must become my everything. I I don't want to deal with any of that. So I will simply dismiss it. The miracles are factual. They're undeniable. They're happening right in front of their eyes to people they personally know. But instead of dealing with them, they just say, it's only Jesus. He grew up here. His family is here. We know them. They know us. And now that I think about it, who who the heck does he think he is coming into town and and teaching us? They dismiss him because they don't want to deal with the consequences of him being the Messiah. 
You'll notice that Joseph isn't mentioned here at all among Jesus' family, and that's probably because he's already passed away. But it would still be customary in that culture to refer to a man through his father, to refer to Jesus as the son of Joseph. The only reason you wouldn't do that is if the father was unknown. So when they refer to Jesus as the son of Mary, they're insulting him by implying that it's not really known who his dad is. Nobody really knows. There's rumors. This reminds us that even then, people didn't buy the Immaculate Conception story. People didn't stop by to light candles in like Mary's window. Blessed Mother Mary. They didn't do that. Her reputation was trash in that town, even 30 years later, and they never forgot it. They never bought the whole idea, well, the Holy Spirit showed up and made me pregnant, which is quite a story when you think about it. It's quite a story. So when sin entered the human race with Adam and Eve, it entered us on a spiritual level, but it also entered on a genetic level. And if you don't believe me, Let me just point out the genetic consequences of the fall of man through sin. The Bible tells us that through sin, physical genetic death entered the human race. Physical genetic sickness entered the human race. Sin didn't just corrupt our spiritual DNA. It corrupted our literal biological DNA. Even the blood that flows through our veins is contaminated by sin. And so in order for our sins to be paid on the cross, Jesus had to be a perfect sacrifice, spotless, without sin, without fault. At the moment of conception, although a baby draws nutrients and liquids from the mother, it draws blood from its own blood supply, which is determined by the father. This is why Jesus couldn't be born from an earthly father. It would have contaminated his genetics and his blood with sin. Therefore, the fact that Jesus, who was conceived supernaturally without a human father and developed in the womb without drawing blood from an earthly father, was able to be born different from any other person in human history, free of sin, making him the only spotless lamb who could die in our place, the only perfect man who has ever lived. And this also reminds us that Jesus grew up under endless rumors, under the endless assumption that he was an illegitimate son. That's how Jesus grew up. It's not a stretch to think that he grew up being called whatever the Hebrew equivalent of bastard is. This is a small town, a small village in an extremely conservative culture. This would have been a scandal of scandals. And it's interesting that all the way back in Psalm 69, which is a messianic psalm, it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus, we get a few hints about these silent years of Jesus' life that the Bible doesn't really talk about much. It's on your outline. In verse 8 of Psalm 69, it says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. What a strange verse until you realize the unique family situation that Jesus grew up in. I can't imagine growing up in a small town where everyone thinks your mom cheated on your dad and he only stayed with her because he's too stupid to put two and two together. He's a moron. He's a simpleton for buying her story that the Holy Spirit made her pregnant. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Why does it say my mother's children and not my father's children? Because Joseph was not Jesus' father. All of Jesus' siblings were half-brothers and half-sisters. They shared the same mother. They didn't share the same father. Can you imagine the tension in the home growing up? At least seven siblings. Mom and dad are known. And then there's Jesus, the oldest. And no one really knows. Even the kids don't really want to talk about it. What sort of pain must Jesus have gone through as a child? Tucked away in Psalm 69 is the virgin birth prophesied in Jesus' painful childhood. In verse 12, it says, Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. The idea is that as Jesus grows up, people at the synagogue and the town hall are mocking him, and the men at the local bar are making up dirty songs about Jesus and his mom. And that's how Jesus grows up in Nazareth. He started suffering long before his ministry began. 
It is profound that Jesus, the only legitimate son of God at that time, lived under a reputation of illegitimacy so that you and I could become legitimate sons and daughters of the Most High God. Jesus' brother James, who's mentioned here, is not the James who's one of the 12 disciples. As we've seen, and we'll see, he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah at this time, but later on he would, and he would go on to lead the Jerusalem church and actually write the epistle of James in the Bible. Judas is actually Judah in Hebrew, and this is not the Judas that betrayed Jesus. This Judas would go on to write the epistle of Jude in the New Testament. The other two brothers don't come up again in Scripture neither do his sisters. And we know because it uses the plural of sisters, Jesus had at least two sisters. We don't know anything else about them. But I always want to stop and point this out to anyone who was raised Catholic or comes from a Catholic background. Because if you're a good Catholic, then you know that Catholic doctrine believes that Mary lived out her life in perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin for her entire life, which would really suck for Joseph. But that's not what happened That's not what happened because we have right here in the Bible in black and white that Mary gave birth to at least six other children. And I want to show you this in the Bible because this is a significant difference. If you're Catholic, the ultimate authority is the church. It's the Vatican. If you're a Christian, the ultimate authority is the word of God. And we elevate that even above church tradition above denominational doctrine, the word of God is the authority. And I want to show it to you so that you know this is not just a small difference, but it's really here in the word of God. And I don't say that to slam the Catholic church. I say it because if you're a believer pursuing Jesus, the word of God needs to be even above the church as far as authority goes in your life. It says this here next. It says, so they were offended at him. They were offended at him. They've gone through the fact they know him, they know his brothers and sisters, his mother, and they were offended now as they begin to think about this. Outrage begins to rise up in them. It's just Jesus. Who the heck does he think he is? And the word offended here is where we actually get the word scandal from in the original language. It's really saying that they were scandalized by Jesus. They found this scandalous. And and what what was the scandal? The scandal was Jesus' rumored illegitimate birth. They found it scandalous that this man would stand up and try to teach them about the kingdom of God when he wasn't even a legitimately born son. Do you know that even his own brothers and sisters viewed Jesus as the weird and kooky member of the family? Just got a Messiah complex. That's all it is. Crazy Jesus. And we know from God's word that they really freak out when they go, guys, I got really bad news. Like people have started listening to him. Like other people are buying this. This situation is getting really out of control. Because all the way back in Mark 3, it says this. It says, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people, his own family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For they said, He is out of his mind. Jesus' own brothers and sisters don't believe the Immaculate Conception story. Because if you believe the Immaculate Conception story, then you're okay with him claiming to be God, I think. I don't think there's any scenario in which they go, okay, I can buy that your father is God and you were born of the Holy Spirit, but I can't buy that you're the Messiah. If you buy the Immaculate Conception, it's no problem to buy that he really is the Messiah. So they don't believe it. They don't believe it. It's Jesus, Mary, and until he dies, Joseph, that essentially believe it. It's the only three people. And at this point, there's only two, Jesus and his mom. They're the only people buying this story. We can make this same type of mistake with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Christ, dwells in you. It dwells in me. The Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And God can speak to any of us, through any of us, at any given moment in time. And I believe we miss so much of what God wants to say to us through each other because we look at the messenger. They're too young. They're too old. They're too different. They're too inexperienced. They haven't been a Christian long enough. They've been a Christian too long. They don't know my life. And we look at the messenger instead of seeing the Holy Spirit in each of us and responding to the Holy Spirit in each of us. This is why marriage is the best discipleship you can ever have because God will speak to you through your spouse whether you like it or not. And usually you won't like it because it's usually spot on. And then if that's not bad enough, God will speak to you through your kids. It's nothing like having a four-year-old 
correct your spiritual process, right? And I believe that God designed that because he wanted us to recognize, listen, if you're going to follow me, you don't get to really pick and choose who I choose to minister to you through. You have to be honest and passionate about pursuing me. And so I want to encourage you, don't ever miss the message because of the messenger. If you can't be okay with God speaking to you through flawed people, you might as well get used to never hearing from God. Because Jesus is not going to walk through that door and start preaching any minute. There's just flawed people that God uses. Don't make the same mistake that people made even when Jesus Christ was standing right before them. They said, this is a good message, but I'm not buying the messenger. Not buying the messenger. The Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in jars of clay, in fragile objects to show that this power is from God and not from us. That's the whole point. God is speaking through them. That's the whole point. That's how you know it's God. Because it's coming through them. Could only be God. That's the whole point. I believe that this is why the Bible tells us to honor one another. Honor is a big, big word because respect is earned, but honor is given. Honor is given. We need to honor the reality that the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. Have you noticed that familiarity can destroy what God wants to do among us? The solution is not being unfamiliar with each other. And as a pastor, I'll tell you this. Most other pastors will tell each other, listen, if you want your people to take you seriously, you need to make sure you're not hanging out with them. Because the more they see of you, the more familiar they become with you, the less seriously they'll take you. And they say that because most of the time it's true. Because when we realize that the people God uses are just ordinary people, suddenly we find it more difficult to hear from them. So if I wanted people to take me really seriously, I would be completely inaccessible. You would just start the service without me, then I would walk in halfway through, don't talk to me, preach the word of God, and then leave, be like, I can't talk to you, I need to stay holy, set apart. Everyone would go, wow, what this guy says is so profound. Or, or maybe if I went up at top of a mountain and you had to hike for two hours in order to hear me teach, we'd probably have twice as many people as we have this morning. Because the more inaccessible you are, the easier it is to view that person with honor. The more you get to know them, the more you realize, what a disappointment. They're just a person like me. They're just a person like me. If you're wondering where I fall, uh, my goal is to be myself because I can live up to that. I can't live up to anything else. It'll just crush me completely. So if you can't get used to the idea of God speaking through a flawed object, you probably need to find another church because I am exhibit A and very grateful that the Lord has made me exhibit A. But when a person is unwilling to believe... Well, have you noticed one of their favorite tactics will be to attack the family of God? They'll point out the problems with other Christians or other pastors or the guy they saw on TV or the coworker they have who has Christian bumper stickers on their cars but is an unbearable idiot to work with. They'll do this because no one's ever been able to find a single fault with Jesus Christ. There's nobody who reads about Jesus and goes, uh, I don't really like that guy. Everybody loves Jesus. You can't find fault in him. So they pick apart his family and his followers. And I've learned to be okay with that because it's an opportunity to say, you shouldn't follow Jesus because of who I am. You should follow Jesus because of who he is. I'm only here to serve as an example that Jesus loves screwed up people. So he's going to love you too. That's the great news. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Nobody comes to church and says, you know, I want to give my life to Jesus because these are simply the most awesome people I've ever met in my life. People come to Jesus despite us, not because of us most of the time. God just does a work. And I've learned to say, you know what, that's absolutely true. As Christians, we are a continual disappointment. And that's why we love Jesus so much, because he loves us just the way that we are. And he loves you too. That's the good news. Somebody always says, if you find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll screw it up. Okay? <laughs> Verse four, it says, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, so Israel among the Jews, among his own relatives, his extended family in the village, and in his own house, in his own home. Jesus says, I can go anywhere 
people will receive me. Some people will, but not here. Not in my own house. Not with my own family. Not with my own people. Write this down. Familiarity is the greatest threat to appropriate honor. Familiarity is the greatest threat to appropriate honor. To prove my point in a way that should make you go, ouch. This is why most of us are kinder and nicer to strangers than we are to our own spouses. This is why. We're more patient with strangers than we are with our own spouses. Why? Because of familiarity. Because of familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt, as the old saying goes. We struggle to view the most accessible and faithful things in our lives as sacred and worthy of honor. Who should we be honoring the most? Our spouse, our kids, our family, our extended family. Instead, that reads as the list of people we struggle to honor the most, doesn't it? They're the hardest. And the same can be true with our relationship with the Lord. Hey, God is ever available, always present, never leaves or forsakes us. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is endless. Does that make us just pour out honor to him? No, no. instead honor becomes a struggle because he's always available. Treating those blessings with appropriate honor is one of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith. That's why I encourage you, take communion every week. Take communion every week because there's something about taking communion that reminds you there's nothing common about a God who would shed his blood to save you and I puts everything back in perspective. And sometimes we don't take communion because we want to keep everything common. We don't want to deal with the gravity of that, the weight of that. I'd encourage you to take it every week. Do it following this message during worship. Don't ever let Jesus become common. Don't let it become normal. The presence of God was in the midst of the people of Nazareth, and they missed it. They missed it because it seemed too familiar. It's just Jesus. Verse 5, underline this. Now, He could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then underline verse six, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And write this on your outlines. Jesus was limited by their unbelief. He was limited by their unbelief. What a staggering statement. He was limited by their unbelief. And your first response is probably the same as mine. He's God. There's nothing that can limit him. Nothing's impossible for him, and that's true. But if you study the Bible, you'll find that the Lord sometimes willingly chooses to limit himself in a certain way because he wants something to work or function in a certain way. For example, could the Lord fully reveal himself to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he chooses to limit the revelation of himself that he gives to us because he desires sons and daughters of faith who choose in their own free will to follow him. And if Jesus were to descend from the clouds right now, free will would be significantly compromised. It would be very hard to deny Jesus when he's, he's there in the sky over there. Look at him. Yep. It would change everything. So he chooses to limit the revelation of himself he gives. Or think of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a flesh and blood man. The Bible says he emptied himself of essentially his supernatural powers and abilities, his godness in terms of power, and he chose to limit himself for the purposes of the incarnation. And faith works the same way. God desires our faith to play a vital role in the work of his power on the earth. That's how he wants it to be. He desires good things for us, but we can limit them by our faith or our unbelief. The Lord desires that we be active partners with him in the miraculous on the earth. And our part in that partnership is faith. That's our part. In Psalm 78, 41, get this if you're still not sure. It says this about the Old Testament Israelites. It's on your outlines. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Limited the Holy One of Israel. It doesn't say that Jesus would do no mighty works in Nazareth. It says he could do no mighty works there he was limited by their lack of faith in him don't miss this jesus showed up desiring to do a miracle he even brought the desire to the equation he wasn't coming there to answer prayers he showed up and said i want to do something great for you something good for you he brought the desire with him 
But write this on your outlines. Their unbelief made them incapable of even receiving a miracle from the Lord. Their unbelief made them incapable of even receiving a miracle from the Lord. You know, sometimes God wants to do a miracle in your life that you don't even know to ask for. You don't even know to ask for it. He's your heavenly father and he loves you. And sometimes he's going to show up and want to do something good and amazing in your life, but he can't because your unbelief has made you incapable of even receiving what he desires to give to you. That is heavy, if you're wondering. It's really heavy. So let's bring this all together. Let's bring this all down to our level and to our individual lives. Our faith has the ability to drastically limit or release the miraculous power of God in our lives. Jesus told us that very clearly in his word. Take his word for it. Don't take mine. And you might be thinking, if I could just see God do some miracles in my life, then I'd have the faith to believe, and we could get the ball rolling. There's only one problem with that line of thinking. Write this down. Miracles don't produce faith. Miracles don't produce faith. They only produce a hunger for more miracles, more signs, and more wonders. Think of the Israelites who were freed from slavery in Egypt under the most demonstratively miraculous circumstances ever recorded. The glory of God demonstrated in his wrath being poured out on Egypt in the plagues, going through the Red Sea, being sustained in the wilderness for years by miracle after miracle after miracle. If you're not sure God exists, there's the cloud leading you by day and a pillar of fire leading you at night. Miracle after miracle. Miracles become mundane. They become ordinary. That's how much is going on. Did any of those miracles build faith in the people of Israel? None of them. In fact, the reason they don't enter the promised land is because of their unbelief. Their unbelief. Because miracles don't produce faith. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Think of the religious leaders in the days of Jesus' ministry on the earth. They've seen miracles. They've seen Him raise the dead. You can go and talk to the guy who was dead. He's over there. Miracle after miracle. And yet they say to Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And Jesus never performed one specifically when they requested it because he understood, guys, a miracle is not going to release the faith in you that you need. You're just going to want to see another miracle. Miracles don't produce faith. Faith produces miracles. It's a big difference. So how do you get faith? How do you get faith? When Jesus came into Nazareth for this final visit, what did he do first? It's in verse 2. What does he do first? It says, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Before Jesus gets into miracles, he teaches them. He proclaimed his word, the word of God, in their hearing. The more you read the Gospels, the more you'll notice this as a pattern for Jesus. When he feeds the 5,000 people, it actually says in the Gospel of Mark, he has compassion on them. They've been there all day. They're hungry. And he says, so because he had compassion on them, because they were hungry, he wanted to do something for them. So what does he do? He says he began to teach them. He began to teach them. He doesn't just do the miracle. He teaches them before the miracle because apparently... The word of God does something in the hearts of men and women to stir and release faith, the faith that Jesus needed to be present in order to do a miracle. So to generate that faith in them, to stir it up, he teaches them because it releases faith in them. In fact, Romans 10, 17 says it plainly, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So write this down. The word of God builds faith in us. The word of God builds faith in us. Now remember the parable of the sower and the parable of the four soils. The word of God must be received. It must be accepted joyfully. It must be taken a hold of. You can't just play a cassette tape of somebody reading the Bible and magically you're going to have faith. You have to receive it. So how do you receive God's word? What does that mean? Well, write this down. To receive God's word means responding to it as though it is true. Responding to it as though it is true. It's that simple. It means saying yes to the word of God. If you believe it, you'll act upon it and ask yourself the question, if this is true, what should it look like in my life? So when you hear the word of God taught about, this is what the word of God says about relationships. 
and you go out and disregard it. Begin sleeping with your significant other outside of marriage. That's not receiving the word of God. You heard it. Oh yeah, you heard it. But you didn't receive it. You didn't welcome it. The same Pharisees who rejected Jesus, they heard the word, but they didn't receive it. They didn't take it in. But when you take it in and you begin to change your life based on what you've heard, you receive it, then this amazing thing begins to happen. You act upon God's word because you trust it. You're only going to act upon it if you believe it and you trust it. And then the craziest thing happens. It works. It works. And that process begins to build faith in you. As God's word is proven true in your life, your faith grows. You can write that down. As God's word is proven true in your life, your faith grows. It's very simple. I believed it, so I changed my life based on it. And then the craziest thing happened. It worked. It worked. Maybe there's something to this word of God. And you hear a little bit more, and then you act upon it. You receive it. You apply it. And this is the bottleneck of faith in the life of most believers. This is the bottleneck. Most believers are struggling with faith in one specific area because they've hit an area of their life where they're not yet willing to trust the word of God. And that's the bottleneck. That's where everything stops. You're trusting God in this area, this area, this area, but this area, you know what the word of God says, but you don't trust him enough yet to change your life based on what you know the word of God says. Maybe you're not yet willing to do marriage God's way. You're not willing to do relationships God's way, money God's way, work God's way. You're not willing to handle doubt and fear God's way. And when you hit a situation like that, it becomes a bottleneck in the development of faith in your life. And your faith will be limited, meaning the power of God in your life will be limited until you decide to receive God's word in faith in every area of your life. Jesus said to the blind men, according to your faith, let it be done to you. The question is this. This is the question for us. Do you have, do I have the faith to match what I'm asking God? I'll go into prophet mode for you right now. I just sense there's someone in the room right now. You need God to do something amazing and powerful in a specific area of your life. And you just need a breakthrough this morning. Is, is there anybody here? Anybody? Anybody? It's all of us. It's all of us. All of us have something significant we would like to see God do in our lives or for someone that we care about. All of us. So this is the question in faith. Do you have the faith to match what you're asking God to do? This is why I don't go home at night and pray that God would give me 10,000 people for our church. Because if I'm honest, I don't have that faith yet. I pray for what I have the faith for because I want to pray in honesty. So the thing you want to see God do in your life, do you have the faith to match that? And I want to, I want to share a very blunt example because th this is the one that hits hardest with people. If you're offended by this, it's because you need to be offended by this, okay? I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that. As a pastor, I mean this sincerely, the most painful thing in the world for me is when I see people and a crisis hits their life. Cancer, bankruptcy, job loss, divorce. And I talk to them and they say, you know what, but I have the faith to believe that God's going to heal me. And I know them. I know them. And here's what I know. I know that they didn't have the faith to trust God with something as ultimately meaningless as dollars and cents. But now they want to proclaim, I have the faith to believe God can heal cancer. And if I'm honest in my head in that moment, I'm thinking, no, you don't. No, you don't. You want to believe you do. But everything in your life leading up to this point shows that you don't have the faith to match what you're asking for. Because faith builds upon faith when the person says man i believe that god is sending me a spouse i have the faith to believe that but every relationship they've been in and every relationship they're in right now is not one that's based on what the word of god says i have to say you don't have the faith to believe that you don't i know you want to you want to think that you do but you don't 
Now, in case you're wondering, I don't ever actually say that out loud. But that's what grieves me deep in my heart because when the crisis hits, we all want to believe we have the faith. We all want to believe it. But the desire to have the faith doesn't mean you actually have it. Faith is where you are when the crisis hits. It's every decision you've made up to that point. You get the call, man, cancer has hit. The faith you have when you get that call is the faith you have. There's no box you can open to get more. There's no switch you can flick. Up to that point in your life, the faith you have is the sum total of every decision you've made. Jesus finds a million ways to ask each of us every day the question, do you trust me? A million ways. He's infinitely creative in the ways he finds to ask us, do you trust me? The number of times we say yes and the number of times we say no is the sum total of our faith. It's the sum total of our faith. Some of us, I'll be honest, we're ready. Some of you, cancer could hit and you're ready because it is your habit, it is your custom, it is your discipline to say yes to God. You've disciplined yourself to say, even when I don't get it, I'm just gonna say yes. You've realized that it's an oxymoron to say no, Lord. So you just say, yes, Lord. Some of you are ready. Some of you are running a deficit in the area of faith. You don't have the faith to believe that God can make up a dollar an hour in income. You don't have the faith to believe that God can lead you to the right person. Don't have the faith to believe that everything going on in your life is under the control of God. He's with you. You're sleepless at night because there's no faith. And the crisis hits, and you're not ready. You're not ready. And when you say, man, I have the faith to believe God's gonna do this, you won't be telling the truth. Jesus showed up in Nazareth. It wasn't the beginning of his ministry. He'd been ministering for a while. They had seen miracles. They had heard the teaching. And they had had to make a decision about faith. Jesus showed up ready to do a miracle. Those who got it were not the ones who just decided on the spot there to believe. They were the ones who had been moving in that direction long before Jesus showed up there. And the ones who didn't were the ones who had been moving away from him long before he ever got there. Faith builds upon faith. It builds upon faith. So if that's you and you're running a deficit, the word repent means change. I grew up in church thinking the word repent means slow music and tears, right? At the end of the service, that's what it means to repent. You gotta cry. If you're not crying, repentance is not real. That's not true. Repentance means change. If that's you, change. I don't know what areas you're saying yes and no to God in. I have no idea, but you know. Start saying yes to God. It's that simple, and you will find faith building upon faith change and here's the good news when jesus wanted to encourage the faith of his disciples he didn't say you need a lot of faith to do what you're asking he doesn't say that to them because sometimes we think man i could never have that amount of faith so here's what jesus said he said if you have faith as small as a mustard seed a mustard seed is the smallest seed there is he says you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move Nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus says, just give me a little bit of faith to work with. Just give me a little bit. And I will do something amazing with it. I'll do something amazing with it. Just believe me, just a little bit, and I'll do something amazing. Did you know that there are over 300,000 promises in the Bible? 300,000. Do you think that some of them might speak to what you're going through right now? Yeah. I think so too. Find them, cling to them, commit them to memory, speak them out loud, and here's a new one for you. Go on record with other people that you believe them. And here's what that looks like. How are you doing right now? Terrible, to be honest. I'm doing terrible. But I believe that God never leaves me or forsakes me. I believe he desires good for me, and I believe that God is doing something with this. Go on the record with your brothers and sisters in Christ, speaking faith. Don't worry about, well, what if it doesn't work out? Don't worry about that. 
Speak faith. God will honor his word. And this is where somebody will often come in and say, well, you you need to balance this whole faith thing out. You need to balance it all out. Don't get all weird with this. Let me say this. You don't balance out faith. You don't balance it out. You don't. Anybody have the testimony, no, I was a believer, but uh, then my life got ruined, and I realized the reason. I had too much faith. Too much faith, and it destroyed me. Nobody has ever had that testimony, ever, ever. You don't balance out faith with doubt. You don't balance out faith with unbelief or less faith. You get balanced faith by being in the whole word of God. That's where faith comes from. Not just one verse, not just one little thing. The full counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul says. I love what Hebrews 11.3 says. It says, put this on your outlines too. This verse is incredible. By faith, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That verse is profound. It's saying, listen, by faith, it's only by faith you even understand that everything you see and touch was created by something you cannot see and touch. If you're into apologetics, I urge you to take note. This is the word of God telling you you will never, by intellect, convince somebody that God is the creator of the world. It's right here in black and white. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. By faith. In our church, when someone comes and says, hey, you know, uh, I just become a Christian, totally buy into evolution, or you're a six-day creationist, I just tell them, hey, listen, This is not an intellectual conversation. This is a faith conversation. So you come here, you grow in faith. Let's touch base in two years and see where you are. Every person who has ever come to believe the word of God emphatically in the area of creation that I have known had a moment where they just said, you know, I just got to the place where I'm like, I believe it. I just believe it. I believe it. That's how you get there. I've never really won a debate of somebody over to that area. Maybe you need to know for your own faith and your own belief. That's awesome. But the writer of Hebrews says, hey, it's by faith that you can understand this. You can't understand the greatest mystery of the universe by intellect. It's by faith. Faith is the key to understanding it all. Notice that Hebrews says the worlds were framed by the word of God. You know, whenever somebody builds a house, they don't put up one wall and then move in and be like, man, when the wind blows from the north, I am set. I am protected. Nobody ever does that. You build all the walls so the structure is sound and whole and provides adequate shelter and protection. That's how God made the universe. He made it in totality. We need to be students of the word so we don't just put up one wall of our house of faith and say, man, I believe it. Word of God says he delights in the prosperity of his servant. I'm going to be rich. You need to build a complete house by being in the whole word of God, a balanced faith so that you understand the word of God, the full counsel of God, and not just an isolated verse here and there. That's where things get weird. The more you get into God's word and receive it as you read it, the more your faith will grow. I'm going to wrap up with this. There's only one other place in the Bible where it says Jesus marveled. Here we have Jesus marveling at the unbelief of his hometownsmen in Nazareth. In another place in the Bible, we find Jesus marveling at a man's faith. That man is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's a Roman centurion. You might remember him. He's the centurion when he said, my servant is sick. I need him healed. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come. He says, you don't need to come. Just say the word and it's done. He says, I have authority over my men. I say to them, go here. They go there. He says, you have authority over everything. Just tell the sickness to leave and it'll go. And it says, Jesus marveled and says, I have not found faith such as this in all of Israel. He marvels. And I believe for every single one of us this morning, Jesus is either marveling at your faith, that you just trust him, you just believe him, or he's marveling at your unbelief, that despite everything you've seen, despite everything he's done, you still won't believe. He's marveling one way or another. That Gentile, so young in the faith, knowing so little, had the kind of faith Jesus was looking for. And Jesus' own people who were educated, familiar with him, 
didn't have the faith that he required. Don't be a believer who has tons of intellectual knowledge about Jesus that never translates into real faith that changes the way you live. It's worthless if it never plays out in your life. It doesn't mean anything. So I want to ask, does your faith show up in your relationships? Does your faith show up in your friendships? In the way you work, in the way you handle what the Lord has given you? Does it show up in your insecurities? He has a million ways of asking you every day, do you trust me? And is there a bottleneck area of faith in your life that's just stopping what God wants to do because you won't trust him? I ask this because Jesus wants to come to your Nazareth and do a mighty work in your life. He wants to. I promise you, he is bringing the desire to the equation. He desires good things for you, miraculously good things for you. And I don't want you to miss your miracle. I don't want you to miss it, and God doesn't either. The journey of every disciple of Jesus is the journey of faith. And in the area of faith, I've realized we're not trying to move ahead. We're trying to move backwards. The Bible says, Jesus says, the highest place of faith that you can get to is relating to God as a child relates to his father. Going all the way back to, why do you believe that? Well, I have this long theological answer. Jesus says, no, the highest answer you can give in faith to why do you believe that is because I know my father and I know my father loves me. That's it. And if he said it, I believe it. It's just that simple. That's the highest point of faith. Not a dissertation about why you should believe, just I know my dad, and I know my dad loves me, and I know my dad never lies to me. That's it. That's the faith that Jesus marvels at. Faith is everything. It is everything in the Christian life. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The first opportunity we always want to give is the opportunity to take the first step of faith. And the first step of faith is simply believing what the Holy Spirit is impressing on your heart right now, that God is real, that he loves you, that what Jesus did on the cross was more than enough to cover every failure, every sin you have ever committed and ever will. He was the only one, the only perfect man who could take your place on that cross and die in your place. And he did that for you. The first and greatest step of faith is simply to respond to the Holy Spirit telling you right now, it's true, and this is for you. And if that's your step of faith this morning, for the first time you're saying, God, I believe. I don't have all the answers. I don't understand everything, but I know you're real and I believe. And I want to begin that relationship with you. If you believe that, you just mark on the back of your connection card, I'm giving my life to Jesus for the first time today. Come and talk to me after the service. I, I just want to hook you up with a couple of books that are going to help you get to know God better. And for all the rest of us here today, some big questions. That thing that you are praying about, you are praying for, do you have the faith to match what you're asking God for? If you do, praise God. Keep going. If you don't, your next question needs to be, what is the area, what are the areas in my life where if I'm honest, I'm saying no to God? And today you simply choose to say yes. And then you walk out of here and you do whatever saying yes to God looks like. You do it. You take real action. You really change take concrete steps, and as you begin to say yes to God, man, he will go to work in your life because here's what's going to happen. That area where you say yes to him, God's going to bless that area. You're going to experience peace like you've never had before in that area. You're going to experience healing like you've never experienced before in that area of your life. And you're going to be reminded the word of God is true. It's the foundation for my life. He's the rock that won't be moved. And if I'm built on him, I will not be shaken. Just begin saying yes to God. If there's a bottleneck in your life, deal with that. And then as we head into this coming time of worship, I encourage every single person 
at some point in these next few songs, go to the back. There's a table in the back with communion elements on there, instructions on what to do. Go take communion and be reminded that just because Jesus is always available doesn't mean there's anything common about him. It doesn't make him any less amazing, any less extraordinary. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that wherever we are, you have come into our lives because you desire to do a mighty work. And wherever we are, we pray that we would be people that you would find faith in. That when you show up wanting to do a miracle in our lives, our faith would not be the barrier to you doing your work. God, we pray that your kingdom would come in our lives, your will would be done in our lives, that we would have the kind of faith that honors you and blesses you. Not a complicated faith, but a faith that says, I know my Father, I know my Father loves me, and I know my Father never lies to me. And that's it. That's it. Just take a moment and do business with God. Share your heart with Him.